0: Down to the river to pray, yeah, yeah. Hey, welcome back, on ladies
1: on and gentlemen, this is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program on Tough Question Tuesday. And by all means, you can call me 303-873-1935. David hinted at some really tough questions about election. Um, you know, what is election? Um, are we elected by God without regard to faith in Christ, or are we elected by God in accordance with faith in Christ? Um, it's either one or the other, but it can't be both. 303-873-1935. Then, of course, Katanji Brown Jackson's nomination has moved to the full Senate, despite a deadlock of an 11-11 vote. And so we're keeping an eye on that. And Earlier, we talked about Elon Musk purchasing stock in Twitter to become the largest shareholder and um, how having a public platform to talk about things becomes so vital. But if you'd like to join me on this tough question Tuesday, it's 303-873-1935, 303-873-1935. There was another headline in the news that Is largely getting ignored, but I think deserves um, a look, and that is a Massachusetts school board has blocked a Christian school from opening because of its religious beliefs. Now, again, we have this great big question of the intersection, crosswalk of Christian faith and Christian living. And a Massachusetts school board violated state law and the United States Constitution by refusing to allow a new private Christian school to open due in part to the school's religious beliefs. Well, what do you suppose those religious beliefs are? Well, it surrounds the swirling cultural issue of sexuality and evolution and so a Massachusetts state law requires, listen carefully, Massachusetts state law requires all private schools to be approved by the local public school district. Vita Real Church, a predominantly Hispanic congregation, had hoped to open a K through eight Christian school in the spring of twenty twenty-one called Real Life Learning Center, but failed to win approval from the Somerville Public School Committee in Somerville, Massachusetts. The committee is composed of seven elected leaders in addition to the mayor and the city council president. First Liberty Institute, which is representing the church, sent an 11-page letter to the school district on March 30th alleging violations of state law in the United States Constitution. It was signed by representatives of First Liberty and the Massachusetts Family Institute. The church had submitted its application in September of 2021. A report approved by the Somerville Public School Committee this year claimed the school does not meet the criteria for approval It says, among other things, the report faulted the school's beliefs on sexuality and evolution. And, of course, this article can be found at ChristianHeadlines.com. It's by Michael Faust, who is the ChristianHeadlines.com contributor. And at ChristianHeadlines.com, as he writes this article and says, well, again, (laughs) this is the school's position, quote. The school's position on homosexuality and creationism makes it difficult to see how a thorough science and health curriculum is possible, the report said. The school's approach to student services and counseling appears to devalue evidence-based psychology and its emphasis on approaches rooted in the belief that mental illness is caused by sins and demons by sin and demons is unscientific and harmful. That's the reason why they're rejecting the school. In Massachusetts, in Somerville, Massachusetts, a school can't exist according to this Somerville Public School Committee. If the school has a biblical view of homosexuality and a biblical view of creation... According to the, the the Somerville Public School Committee, it's impossible to educate a child with a world view that mental illness might have some sort of relationship to sin or demons. One committee member allegedly said that blocking the application, not making it up, was the quote morally right thing to do. So imagine living in a world where the moral, the morally right thing to do is to advocate for what the Bible says is immoral or to advocate for what the Bible says is untrue. So First Liberty maintains that the school meets the state standards for approval. It says, quote, the hostility displayed by the Somerville Public School Committee is outrageous, says Justin Butterfield, who's the deputy general counsel at First Liberty. Quote, the government cannot ban a religious school because they disagree with its religious beliefs. Doing so violates federal constitutional and statutory law. The school had hoped to open in the fall, but if the committee continues blocking the application, then the church said it's going to pursue all legal available options. But this is the world, not in China, not, not in communist China, Not in totalitarian North Korea, not even in the medieval imperialistic state of Russia, but in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the city said, no, a Christian school can't operate because of their views of creation and their views on homosexuality. 303. 873 1935. That's the number. If you want to join me on the program on this Tough Question Tuesday, happy to take your calls. Again, Jim is standing by 303 873 1935 if you would like to join me on the program. And uh, we were talking about the subject of a loving God sending someone to hell. And we talked about defining our terms about a loving God. And again, asking and answering the question, what do you mean by a loving God? And does the Bible give us an adequate picture of both the goodness of God and what a loving God really looks like? And so we talked about the fallacy of just simply saying, how can a loving God send someone to hell? It's asking and answering the question another way. How can a loving God not send someone to hell? The second fallacy is presented by the question, how can a loving God send someone to hell concerns the word send, which denotes action only on the part of the sender. If a man sends a letter, sends a request, sends a gift, all action was done by the sender. But does the person who sent play a role? So. I'll be back. 303-873-1935. I'll be back. Hey, if you'd like to join me on the program, the number is 303-873-1935. I just asked the question, Has is Putin still on Twitter while Trump is banned? Well, I don't know. The dispatch has a fact check. It says as of March 9th, Putin has no personal account, but the official president of Russia account is active. So a viral Facebook post claims that President Vladimir Putin's Twitter account has not been suspended despite Russia's invasion of Ukraine and repeated attempts to spread disinformation the claim has also been featured on other posts, but again, this is where we ask and we answer that kind of strange question for Christians, and that is the relationship of social media to Christianity, and... um 3038731935 we do happen to have an article at gotquestions.org on should a christian use social media networking tools facebook twitter pinterest instagram etc and um the article's pretty interesting we'll get to it 303 303- 873-1935. It is Tough Question Tuesday. So if you'd like to join me on the program, it's easy to do. 303-873-1935. So at gotquestions.org, your questions, biblical answers under the heading Should a Christian Use Social Media slash networking tools, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest Instagram, etc. The answer is hundreds of millions of people are running towards social networking sites like Facebook and Twitter, to participate in the relational components of the Internet? Are these networks the next big mission field or an enormous waste of time? Now, that question in in and of itself is interesting. I, I'm not off the article now based on what Elon Musk has done by spending more than $12 billion for just a 10% stake in Twitter, calling it the public square. So I think we have to ask him to answer all kinds of questions. And that is, what does it do? And what is it intended to do? And is it helpful or healthy? There's lots of questions. 303-873-1935, but I want to take your calls first. 303-873-1935. Paul, welcome to the program.
2: Hey. Hey. Um so you've always told us um it can't say anything that it's not saying. How do you how did you say that?
1: I always say the text can never mean what it never meant.
2: Okay. So you have the text I'm referring to. 1
1: Corinthians 15.32. It, that's what my...
2: Um, it's fifteen fifteen two in a twinkling of an eye.
1: So it's not 15.32. My producer wrote down 15.32. So if you want the twinkling of an eye, okay.
2: Okay, um, so I'm... Thinking that
1: that's fifteen thirty-eight. Things wrong. Yeah, that's so. So I, well, yeah. Let's start by getting the the right verse. Okay. It, is it First 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-eight that you're looking at?
2: No. It says, uh, "In the twinkling of an eye," that phrase. I'm gonna find the the, the phrase. I think it's fifty-two. I'm using Bible hub. I'm pretty sure it's telling me the right thing. It's
1: 1552. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You wrote down 1532, but that's okay. It's okay. Okay. So what do you want to know?
2: Okay. Uh, so look, I've been on the internet. I've watched a lot of movies and, uh, the term "I well, it could mean a lot of things for someone like me all right so let's let's talk about
1: what it could mean and probably what it what probably what it means
2: i'd like to know I'm, I'm sure you thought about most of the things I asked about you've studied these things that 's why i'm calling you
1: well in in first 1 corinthians fifteen fifty two Paul is making a statement about the nature of, of bodies in the eternal state. So he's talking about the resurrection bodies. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 52... When it says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So, the way that I would think about it is the context. So, the context begins at the beginning of the chapter and continues with the proofs of the believer's resurrection. And then it continues with the process of the believer's resurrection. And then it ends with the program of the believer's resurrection. We shall not all die. That means sleep because some saints will be alive when Jesus returns, but we shall all be changed. Paul says when Christ returns, the dead will be raised first. The living will be caught up. And he says, and we will be changed To be like Christ, all of that's happening in a twinkling of an eye. So I'm going to suggest to you that in the twinkling of an eye is an idiomatic expression, which means that it's so fast that you can't even comprehend it. So let's, let's think of something literal for a moment and then metaphorical. Literally in the twinkling of an eye is the amount of time it takes for light to reflect off the surface of your eye. So the twinkling of an eye is the amount of time that it takes for light to reflect from the surface of your eye. So now, again, I'm sure that Paul didn't know that light traveled, you know, the the, the, the calculations for light had not uh, been done at that time, but, and I, and I don't know off the top of my head, but I'm thinking it's about 186,000 miles per second. (laughs) Um, Well, here, I'll just type it in. Speed of light. So the speed of light is 299,792,458 meters. Or if we translate that into... um, time, it's 188,000. What did I say? I was pretty close. 186,282 miles per second.
2: Like anybody should remember that number.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. Who could, yeah, you're exactly right. So I, I said 188,000, but it's really 186,282 miles. So now, so we say literally, literally it's the amount of time that it takes for light to reflect off the surface of your eye. So if it's metaphorical, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the amount of time that it's going to take for God to resurrect the human body and change it is going to be instantaneous. So it's not like a chrysalis in a cocoon. So we're back to what I said earlier. The text can never mean what it never meant. It can't mean that it's going to take a whole lot of time for our resurrected body to come into being, it's going to take what Paul is describing as the time is so incomprehensibly small as to be meaningless. Okay. And that's the answer.
2: Um, So to me, the term I... Uh, remember in what is it? Revelation. Uh huh. Behold, he's coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him. Uh huh. The term "eye."
1: It usually means the, anato- the that part of the anatomy that people use to look with.
2: Okay, and an eye there's a black hole in the middle of it. Okay, I gotta go. Welcome back,
1: ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me. Now, Paul, I was going to give you uh, an opportunity to finish your thought. You were talking about the eye.
2: Okay. Um, I thought of a good question. So I haven't researched all the languages and all these things. So what does that word mean in the original manuscripts? The the word
1: I a- a- again. It usually is a reference to the human anatomical eye, that organ that you used to, to look with. Now, obviously, there's a context depending on how the word eye is used both in the Old and the New Testament, like in the Old Testament, where it says the eyes of the Lord go to and fro. It's an anthropomorphic expression. Does God have a literal eye with a pupil that's attached to his retina, which is attached to his brain? And the answer is no. It's, it's an anthropomorphic expression as to, 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 to sort of talk about this issue of seeing. And so even using um, what you were talking about earlier about the hole that's in the middle of the eye, that's called the pupil, and uh Jesus talks about the eye is the lamp of the body um and and so de- depending on the context
2: there is some say it's a it's a window to the soul well it, you know there's that say
1: sure and so when 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 Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body, if your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light he's describing the eye like a lamp that, that lights the entire body now. Our eyes anatomically are what allows us to see light and, and perceive things. But what Jesus is doing, he's talking about that the eyes are the entrance to the heart and the mind, so they provide a pathway to the soul so when he refers to good eyes he he meant eyes that not only see well but perceive well so he's talking about not just a, an anatomical eye but he's talking about perception in general so so the bible has a context where an eye is used like uh, again every eye will see him well, does that mean blind eyes? You know, people who are blind, will they
2: see it you know, when he comes? You, they're, please they're com- understand, I'm uh, talking about all this in an esoteric sense. Right. And, yeah, it feels like I'm misinterpreting it, and it's saying, well, well you just got done saying it meant, and right. uh, maybe I'm misinterpreting it. I'm going off the deep end uh, well, where I'm you, not supposed Maybe, to
1: go. maybe, and that's why you have certain hermeneutical tools in other words, right. you, you have a, that, that, that means interpretive
2: tools. Now, when you go through seminary, you study hermeneutics. Sure. The art and science of interpretation. Right. Yeah. Okay, I've been through that a little bit. I'm not great at it.
1: Well, but, but again, that becomes part of the challenge. But you
2: for one, the context what came just before what came after and what the subject is in general
1: right but but again in in a, in a way this is like social skills where y- you have an interpretive context when you're relating to people you know we live in a culture and a society where there's certain conversations that we have where we that it should have some sort of context like so if a person Start screaming at a funeral or laughing uncontrollably and hysterically. We understand that there's certain behaviors in a context that don't make a whole lot of sense that we might make an explanation for. And we go, you know, this is a funeral or this is this, or this person is grieving or in other words, we're trying to understand behavior in a context. The same is true when it comes to interpretive um evaluations that we make about the Bible. And so oddly enough, there are some simple, simple things that I try to help that that you don't necessarily learn in seminary. Like the first tool in hermeneutics, in my view, is for us, for me to get right with God. In other words, the first hermeneutical principle isn't context. It is You having a right relationship with God in Christ, because if you don't have a right relationship with God in Christ, the chances are, however you interpret whatever it is that you're trying to interpret, that you run the risk of it being skewed. That doesn't mean it will. Is it possible for a person who doesn't have a right relationship with God to contextually understand what's going on in the text, or the revelation for instance the the opening verse in the bible in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth do you have to go to seminary to understand what that means or is the plain reading of the text it does the bible itself offer the reader the invitation to read it on its face value? And I think that the answer is yes. That doesn't mean that there's no such thing as a metaphor or there's no such thing as poetic language. Yeah, all
2: that metaphor and stuff, it's so complicated.
1: Well, but but again, in a way it is, but in a way it isn't. So if I say to you, if, if I say, hey, I mean, you know. It's beautiful,
2: but it's complicated.
1: Well, if I say, Bruce, later on, you know, the the, the forecast is that it's going to rain cats and dogs. Now, we live in a culture and a society, if I say it's going to rain cats and dogs, you know I'm not talking literal cats and dogs are going to fall from heaven. You you understand that there are idiomatic cultural expressions that we use with one another that you you begin to understand and adopt in normal conversations. So we we have to ask and answer the question, you're right. Is the way that the Bible is speaking, is the way that the Bible is speaking, was it meant to be understood by and large, or was it meant to be hidden and complicated? Now, I'm going to suggest to you that there are parts of the Bible that are purposely written in such a way to obfuscate or to to not make clear, like a parable. A parable can sometimes be used to reveal or conceal, depending on what is the the, the motivation of the person who's talking. Richard Nixon would famously say when we were kids, I want to make one thing perfectly clear. And then he would obfuscate. So we knew he was, he was not being entirely honest with us. But there are normal people who, who, when they use that term, hey, how can I make this as clear as possible? And they genuinely are trying to do that. And so I'm going to suggest to you that most competent Bible teachers are trying to provide clarity So that you can understand what you're reading and then apply what you're reading um, in your life. To me, that's a good
2: Bible teacher. So all these complicated things, shouldn't I just ignore all the complicated metaphoric stuff and just concentrate, like you said, on the very fundamental things? But
1: that's not what you do in real life. Because guess what? Some of the things that you really enjoy in life are complicated. And let me give you some examples, like food or music. Um, I don't know what kind of food or music that you like, but it's probably the nuances in the music and the food that you enjoy. Unless, of course, I've completely misread you, and you like stale, uncomplicated, bland food and nonsensical music. Chances are there's... There's more nuance to you than you're letting on.
2: So yeah, I just, I just, if it were for Revelation and well, the way everything was spoken there. Well, here's what I here, here, And the yeah. parables.
1: Well, here, here, here's here what I'm telling you. Don't be frustrated by what's difficult. Start with what's simple. And oh, by the way, interpret. What is unclear by what is clear, not the other way around. Hey, I gotta okay. go. <laughs> right. Thank you for your call, 303 873 1935. That's a takeaway. Interpret what is clear first. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Let's see who's up. <laughs> Bruce, welcome to the program.
3: Oh, hi, Gino. Thanks for having me back on again. Yeah,
1: hey, you're welcome.
3: Um, you know, I, I'm the guy that has the science background on things. And, I you love know, and science,
1: in the... as you know. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, and uh, you, you were talking about a twinkling of an eye yeah, kind the, of an idea.
1: The amount well, of time it takes for light to reflect from the surface of the eyes. Would it...
3: That's what that means. Right and you were kind of talking about some numbers but they're like all hard to remember but uh, i i've worked a lot with uh lasers and and optics and you know light in so general you have and, to
1: know this stuff
3: well i i have uh, more insight probably than the average citizen but you know there there's so much to know about all of it but but a thing because i worked a lot with uh lasers and pulsed energy lasers uh, a simple rule of thumb is that uh light travels about one foot per nanosecond
1: mm-hmm.
3: and and to put that in context, a nanosecond is a, a thousandth of a microsecond and if if you're familiar with that and then and then a microsecond is a thousandth of a millisecond but <laughs> but to kind of kind of tie it together so it makes sense it's basically you know a billionth of a second. And so, you know, and and if you see somebody's twinkling of an eye, if you're ten feet away from them and you see a little little glint or sparkle off of their eye, that just like the same thing if if in the distance there was a a, a pe- some glass or um, a mirror or something and it was moving and for just a moment that glint off of it you know caught your eye like on a distant hillside or whatever, it's the same kind of idea. It's just the amount of time would be based on the distance. So if, for example, you know, in, in uh, people distances, if you're about 10 feet away, it would be about 10 nanoseconds for that little glint of light once it reached the eye then to travel to the observer 10 feet away. So you, so you could say a twinkling of an eye is, you know, in the ballpark of nanoseconds. And then to tie it into your broadcast of your station, you know, 94.7 FM, that's um, megacycles or megahertz. Uh-huh. And that's, that would be basically if you round off the 90 to 100, because engineers and scientists like to talk in round numbers, it would be roughly 100 million cycles per second. And so to get the time period, because, you know, these, these broadcast frequencies, they have, you know, like there's, it's a sine wave, electromagnetic sine wave that propagates through the air. And if you invert that to get the time, because one over the frequency is the time per cycle of you know one cycle of the sine wave, one one hundredth, or a, you know if you had a hundred megacycles, you invert that, that would be a hundred one hundredth of a microsecond, and that's ten nanoseconds. So the same time that glints off the eye is basically the the um, period for. One tiny waveform in your broadcast in the, in the megacycles. So so that's another way of looking at it. So maybe there's a twinkling of an eye insight into your broadcast, right? <laughs> no, it's all
1: so very fascinating. I have a PhD friend um, at the University of uh, Denver University who's the math professor, and he's doing research on light, and he's asking those fundamental questions still. You know, there's certain things that we understand about light, but there's certain things we don't understand about light. Like, where did it come from? How is it here? Where does it go? In other words, are there, you work with light every day, but do we know everything that could possibly be known about light?
3: And what, well, he and said that's so, what, what yeah, go, go ahead.
1: Well, he said something to me that was not startling, but it is startling. He suggested that, Time doesn't exist in light. And and by that, he's saying, look, the, what you were just talking about, measurements. Me, time is measurement. In order to have time, you have to have, well, matter, energy, and motion. But what do you do if you take away matter, energy, and motion, and all that's left is light? What is that?
3: Well, I mean, it's, it's broke down as just little packets of energy. Because what it is, is from, from, a, whatever kind of matter that you have, uh, a reaction in the matter causes a release of energy. And it's just that when you see a beam of light, it was just that it's concentrated and focused to travel in one specific direction instead of being omnidirectional. And so it, it then would travel like at what we call the speed of light, which has, you know, been a scientifically measured number. I mean, I I don't know what to say beyond that other than that the fact it travels, it takes time to get there, but it's a very fast time. Oh, and another number to think about, this is commonly used by a lot of people, at the speed of light, uh, if you, uh, to travel around roughly the equator of the Earth, seven and a half times per second, you know, with a light, if you had a laser and you aimed it from the equator out and if it could curve around the Earth, the second you turned it on, one second later, that original start of the light would come back around you seven and a half times in one second.
1: Isn't it fascinating that the human eye can detect electromagnetic radiation? And that
3: oh, yeah. e-
1: even then, So so I know that there's a spectrum in which we can see, and then there's a spectrum that, you know, you talk about the visible spectrum of light. And then that which is not visible, you know, we're back to the eye and that what the earlier caller talked about, what, you know, what does the Bible mean by eye? Well, usually it means the, that anatomical portion of the body, but, but it's used metaphorically. It's used anthropomorphically to describe God. It's used in a number of different ways, but it seems to me again, that all that can be known about light is not yet known that there's certain things about light that are confounding
3: well and that's how new uh devices and and such are in over time developed is because as you know more findings are made about you know nuances in the way light behaves and that you can come up with other ways that that could possibly use to produce some kind of a uh, sensing or transmitting kind of device of some kind that might take advantage of that in a way. So, yeah, I mean, I, I hear you on that. There's, it, I look at it like uh, knowledge being like a leg and when you put more, knowledge or or water in the lake you expand the shoreline of your ignorance
1: (laughs) well see to, to me i'm wondering i i know that so many experiments have been done on calculating the speed of light and and how we've used it as a measurement but again the calculations on the speed doesn't Tell us what light is. Just that it—it's—it's it, it's describing a property. Um,
3: it, right. It's a, oh, it's right. A, well, it's, and, and it's, it comes back to it's a electromagnetic radiation that you know. And again, you know, energy is released, and when it's released, it transmits outward in a, in a omnidirectional me- method, unless you use some type of optical gathering device, like a lens right. or something to, to concentrate and, it so to, it goes yeah. in one direction.
1: Exactly. And and so as it travels to the end of the universe, wherever that is, where does it go once it reaches the end of the universe?
3: Well, if, if somebody was at the other end to know, they then they could send a signal back and tell you. <laughs> 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 you that, but that's it. Well, and that's how they come up with like claiming that it's bi- billions of years old. Universe is that they 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 predict that because of like there's globular clusters and that which you know different types of sizes of stars and they predicted ages and, of stars and,
1: and, and then I'm, therefore
3: they can measure and so on. But you know, there's a lot can- of
1: I'm willing to concede that 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 the biggest scientific problem that creationists have is light from distant galaxies and, and radioisotopic dating. It it but it isn't an insurmountable problem, but it is a problem.
3: Well, well, but there's there's also a big problem with uh, people that go with this evolution thing because they have to extrapolate billions of years. Oh, yeah, and it oh, becomes yeah. becomes an arrogant presumption to it say is... That, that, is, that.
0: Hey. That th- is
1: mine. Thank you for your call.